We need it, huh? All right, so we're recording. All right. Well, I came out of work and uh, my car was uncomfortably muggy, which for me seemed like like a good sign. Like we might have turned a corner. So, yeah, right. All right. So, um. I wanted to start off just kind of sharing a little bit of my own experience uh, before we get into exactly what Rod wanted me to speak about this evening. Uh, this was many years ago, maybe eight, eight years ago now, I had a guy walk into the vestibule of our church, and uh, I was walking through at the same time, and he was coming through the door, and he saw me, and I saw him, and we knew, I knew he was there to ask me for money and he knew I was the pastor. I had like a button up and I had like a sweater on and couldn't have looked more pastorly. And so he looked at me and I looked at him and he knew and I knew and I knew that he knew that I was the pastor and I had to deal with it. And so he sat down on the couch and he floored me though. He didn't like jump into to, to a spiel about like what he wanted and why he was there. He hit me with a question I wasn't prepared for. He asked me, what do y'all do here? Kind of looked around. What do y'all do here? And I feel like that should have been a layup. If you're the pastor of the church, you should be able to answer that question. But I found it rather difficult to answer in that moment. I thought immediately of our Sunday service, everything was kind of geared towards that. Everything was about making that bigger, better, faster, more awesome, more people, bigger footprint. Bigger footprint means more ministry. More ministry means a bigger impact on the city. And that's what we were all about. And so I was sort of rehearsing some of these answers in my mind to answer his very honest and very open question. And none of them quite satisfied me, which led me to a quest with that simple question, what is it that we are supposed to be doing here? What is it that we are supposed to be after? What is this all about? What should Christians be doing? And so part of this quest uh, became a doctorate program and became uh, me actually reading through all of the Bible and coding out every time the people of God practiced anything. Anytime they did something spiritual or practical or anything that they were doing, I coded it all out so that we could kind of come to some fixed answers. What is it that the church should look like? And then I could write it all down in an awesome book and everyone would buy it and the world would be saved and everyone would go home happy, right? That's how this is supposed to work. And then I had a massive nervous breakdown and it didn't work out that way at all. <laughs> For a few days, I didn't know where I was or what I was doing um, at all. And so the question of what should the church be doing kind of evaporated. It became rather meaningless as I tried to figure out what life was even for, what any of these answers were about. Some place between Holland and Portage, I was struck down on the highway and some little gas station along the route there, I was laid bare and um, came to the end of myself. And I was given some time off uh, after that to sort of just not be in church. It had been the longest time, a month or so, I was not in church doing something, being something, saying something. Uh, and, and it was incredible. <laughs> it was life-giving. I sat on my deck and I did nothing but stare at the trees for a month. 
And uh, after that was done, it was time for me to go back. And, and I was going to go back and I was going to see everybody. I was really excited, even the most toxic person. I was so excited just to see people again and to, to shake hands and, to, and just to be present with everyone. And I came in and I had that kind of cathartic experience. And then we came into the sanctuary. And the first thing I noticed that we did, and that was we turned all the lights off. And I started to look around, and I realized I couldn't see the trees. And I started contemplating in my, in, my, in my pew. I was looking up, and I thought, I wonder how much skylights cost for us to cut in to the, to the ceilings. Because I thought, how strange is it that we have gathered together to worship the God of creation, to sing all these songs about the God of creation, literally saying, you're the God of creation, we worship you. And yet, I see nothing of what he made in this locked room that we have created so that we could create the ambience, the mood, everything could be set and we could create the exact right situation again so we could be bigger, better, faster, stronger. None of that sits right with me. It didn't sit right with me then. It doesn't now. And in that quest uh, to answer that question, it makes a lot of sense that Rob would call me up and say, hey, you know, we're done with Resurrection Sunday. We're thinking and now about like, what should the church be? What should we be doing? Where did we go wrong? What's it all about? On paper, I'm the perfect person to answer that question. And I can't. I can't at all. I think instead maybe what we could do because if you spend time in the New Testament, you begin to see that everything that's happening is incredibly ad hoc. As problems come about, they answer those problems with situations. And so as I think about what it is that the church should be, where we went wrong, where, where in history things went sideways and became different, we could talk about all of that, but that might not get us very far other than arguments about history. But one of the things we can know, I think, or at least have some clue on, is what did Jesus expect to happen as a result of what he was doing? Does that make sense? What did Jesus anticipate? He comes and he does a bunch of things. He does his ministry. What does he think will be left behind? What does he think will actually happen? What is he doing? Luke clues us in on that. In Luke chapter 4, if you have Bibles, you can find it. If not, I'm just going to read the verses anyway. But in Luke chapter 4, uh, Luke has done an amazing job of setting us up with great expectations. He has given us the birth of Jesus, all of these details about the miraculous nature of Jesus, his conception, the miraculous nature of his, his cousin's conception, all of this backstory, all of this prophecy, until finally in chapter 4, we're finally about to hear Jesus speak. What will he say? We've been hearing all about this guy, and now he's walked into the synagogue, he's asked, asked for a scroll, he's opened the scroll, he's found Isaiah 61, and he begins to read. This is his message. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim gospel, good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls the scroll up. He gives it to the attendant. He sits down and he says, Today in your hearing, these words are fulfilled. And everyone marvels at the graciousness of his speech. And you'll forgive me because I was a preacher for a long time, so I'll just kind of walk through some of the 
things that Jesus mentioned there, quoting, of course, from Isaiah 61. He said that the Spirit of God was upon him to declare good news to the poor. You've heard that word gospel, good news, a Greek word, euangelion, which has a lot of connotations. The first is, has anyone here ever been poor? What is good news to a person in a situation where they're poor? What is it? Provision. Provision. It's it's a bill taken care of. It's food. It's security. It's knowing that I don't have to worry about tomorrow. That is good news. Without it, you are not offering a holistic sense of shalom, of peace. You are not offering peace to that person. So Jesus comes to declare good news to the poor. He says, but more than that, buried in kind of the history of that word is its political connotation, because that word euangelion had a very political connotation. As a herald would go into, or an announcer would go into a city or go forward into a town to declare the coming of a king or a noble or a new decree, if there was something that had to be shouted out, this person would come in and they would announce good news. So if you can imagine, Caesar is coming to town with his army, and the herald comes in to declare the good news that Caesar has arrived. Is that good news? It depends, doesn't it? It depends on if you're on Caesar's side. If Caesar is your king, then it's really good news. If Caesar is not your king, then you're about to go to war. It's not good news, right? The empire, of course, always thinks it's good news, but the other people on the other side of that empire who are about to feel the brunt of that uh, uh, recognize that it isn't always good news. So what is it for Jesus to say that the coming of God is euangelion, is good news for the poor? It means that God is the God of the poor, and that when he shows up, he shows up to liberate them. He shows up and they get to cheer because God is on their side. I have come to declare good news for the poor. Isn't that why Mary says that he has come to bring the mountains low, the valleys lifted? Isn't that why John the Baptist says to those listening, hey, make flat plains, level the field, make it straight, make it easy, for the Messiah is coming, and the mountains are coming down, and the valleys are coming up. And when Jesus declares this message in chapter 4, he declares it not on the mountain to represent Moses, as we get in Matthew, but rather on the plain, where everyone stands, even Jesus, on equal footing. He has come to proclaim freedom to prisoners. I was actually reading this week. It's very interesting. In most cities, one of the best ways to stop homelessness, vagrancy, people being there that you don't want, is to set up laws so that when you're stopped by a police officer, if you don't have money, they can put you in jail. You can literally, in America, in most places, go to jail for being poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for those who have been blinded, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor. Does that ring a bell to your ears? I, I don't know. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it does. It should maybe draw our minds back to the Old Testament word. You don't hear very often, but that word jubilee. 
You heard about that? That, that the, ensconced in the law of Moses was that every seventh year was a sabbatical year. You got a, a year off. In my current position, my current job, you have to work for a year before you get a week of vacation. In Israel, after seven years, not only did the people get rest, but the beasts of burden, the, the ground itself, you can hear the love of the planet, the ecology in the law of Moses that everything gets a year of rest. But then every 50th year was even better than that because on that year, everyone who had been so lost their, their, their livelihood and been sold into slavery was set free. The land that maybe your dad lost because he made a bad deal came back to the family. Any debt that you owed to the bank was washed free student loans gone, all of the bad mistakes that you made, and that credit card when you were 21 and you didn't know better, washed away, baby. It's, it's a reset. It's a reset. Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he says, the Spirit of God is on me to tell you this begins jubilee. This begins jubilee. And it strikes me that as Jesus lays that out and we ask the question, well, what should the church look like? And we could argue all day about polity and politics and, and uh, the church uh, movement that I come through likes to argue about baptism and, and how much of the Bible you believe or don't believe. And, and we could argue about all of that stuff. But, but before we get to all of those really, really interesting details, let's start with this. Are we living jubilee? Are we pursuing jubilee? Is that the beat of our heart as we gather together and think about moving and being and sharing life and space with those around us? Is that where we are? Because it seems to me that as I hear that message, I hear a message of, of maximum freedom because we are so small. Our time is so short that that word in Ecclesiastes becomes more and more meaningful to me that, that we're, we're vapor, we're, we're this mist, and it's here for a moment and it's gone. And so it's so valuable, it's so precious, but it must be pursued with meaning, with vigor. And so my question, as Rod said, you know, you know talk about where the church went wrong. I mean, that, that sounds like my soapbox. <laughs> Talk about where we might, we maybe where we should go. That sounds like too wise for me. But, but what I can say is this, and that is when Jesus showed up, he seemed to think he inaugurated something that had not been realized yet. That something was missing, and Isaiah called to it. And in those passages in Isaiah, those are a part of those last moments in Isaiah. He's, he's telling of the time of the suffering of the servant and the redemption of the people and this hope that they had in their oppression and in their brokenness and having the Babylonian heel on their neck and then the Persian heel and then the Greek and then the Roman, that they would experience that freedom. One of the most interesting things about the early church is that for about 300 and maybe a little more years, they were persecuted as a minority. And then slowly over 50 to 100 years, they began to receive more and more power. And you know what we ended up doing? At one point, we began to start riots, burning pagan temples down, just like they used to do to us. We turned the tables on it. We had the power, and so then we took it back. That's part of our history, and that's this back and forth, back and forth 
victim, victimizer, this cycle, this system, this brokenness, that wheel that keeps on turning, that Jesus came to put a a brick in to stop so that we could declare Jubilee, live Jubilee, and begin to see it take its root. And that's what the kingdom of God was all about. It was about seeing something happen in the midst of people where real broken lives meet real healing, wholeness, And so as I think for myself and think about what I want to attach the rest of my life to as I think about how to make sense as I still struggle to make sense of God, the universe, and everything, I think of some of these questions. Has the church or the people, the, the, the thing that I've attached myself to, has it sided with the poor, the outcast, the oppressed? Not all gods side with these, but the crucified one does, right? The crucified one does. Have we sided with liberating the oppressed? Are we working to see slaves free? Are we afraid of speaking up when we see systemic injustice? Or are we committing ourselves to doing the best we can to resist it? Is there tangible fruit in our efforts to bring about real and lasting change in someone's life? Do we really long to see the upside-down world that Jesus declared where the poor are shown to be rich, where the strong are shown to be weak, and where the weak inexplicably are shown to be immeasurably stronger than we ever gave them credit for? Do we want to see Mercy. Do we want to see the meek inherit the earth? 